Civilizations, episode 10. This is a big one, eh, Dave? The American Revolution. Major consequences, huge implications, global things. <laughs> yeah, we're still living it today. And we're still living it today. Do you want to get us started? Uh, sure, sure. So if we pick up where we left off with the last episode of the uh, power politics and the end of the Seven Years' War, and if we connect to an earlier episode of ideas and pick up those enlightenment ideas that were floating around, you, you can see where the American Revolution comes from. One of the big causes is uh, those enlightenment ideas. Americans were particularly interested in John Locke's idea of a social contract where the ruled uh, had to consent to the rule of their uh, kings, of their superiors. But it wasn't just Enlightenment ideas. We, we have to remember so many early Americans were those Puritans who fled England to escape religious persecution. So they've got a collection of unusual ideas. We were uh, talking about the levelers in an earlier episode. And some of those ideas are floating around, the concept of all men being created equal, uh, which sounds really, really good if you are a wealthy upper middle class individual, because your interpretation of that is, I'm just as good as those noblemen. Of course, the idea that a peasant is your equal is you know, not what you're talking about at all. That's a laughable concept. But uh, in terms of social mobility, for those people that are you know, one level below the nobles, this sounds really, really great. There's also a strong uh, dislike of the concept of divine right of kings. A lot of early American revolutionary influences, a lot of the writers really focused on this concept, which I find uh, curious. I don't know if it struck you that way, because they obviously missed our episode on constitutionalism. Uh, <laughs> right. The English kings are not arguing divine right anymore. In fact, once you cut the king's head off in 1649, a hundred years later, you don't find English kings saying, you know, I rule by divine right. So they, they, they cut one king's head off and kicked out another. It's pretty clear that parliament holds the, the reins. You know, sometimes the king is driving the, 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 the wagon or, the, or steering the ship, if you like. But divine right's not a not really a thing anymore. Of course, there are some th things, sorry, that, that upset Americans. One is geography and, and distance. You know, by the time your complaint reaches London and the answer comes back, sometimes six months or a year have passed, and uh, that annoyed them quite a bit. But probably the major cause of the, uh, the war, of the Revolutionary War, was the expense of the previous two wars. So the British fought the War of Austrian Succession and the Seven Years' War, basically known as the French and Indian Wars in North America. And they were very, very, very expensive, which meant that Britain wanted to uh, pay off that debt and they wanted Americans to pay their share. Some people in London are saying, for example, that these wars were basically fought for the benefit of the Americans and therefore they should definitely be asked to pay a chunk of the cost. Um, and then there was one move by the English that really uh, set American teeth on edge, and that was the Royal Proclamation of 1763. Did you want to go into that one? Oh, yeah. The Royal Proclamation that comes at the end of the 
formal conclusion of the war between Britain and France, the Seven Years' War. What the Royal Proclamation does is it forbids colonial governors from issuing land grants west of basically, I guess, where Florida is, right? I mean, it's basically saying you can't take more Indian land because the British crown has many of many uh, Indian nations as allies. And these alliances are, the British are basically saying these alliances are as important to the British crown as, uh, as the relationship to the American colonies. Yeah, the, the biggest part of the Royal Proclamation is officially making Quebec or French Canada part of the British Empire. So now that we own Quebec, that also means that we own Ontario and the Ohio Valley and all, you know a big chunk of territory just over the Appalachian Mountains. And we're not sure what to do with it yet. Uh, yes, some of our Indian yeah. allies live there. And so do some former French allies, Native American, but they were allied to the French. And Britain wasn't quite sure what to do with it. So this is a moratorium. This is a for now, no more expanding into those territories. And this really annoyed certain Americans who were hoping to make a huge profit on the Ohio Valley by buying up the land and then selling it to others. Uh, including a certain George Washington. A lot of the American revolutionaries have that land hunger um, as a as a major motivation. Of yeah. Can I read this doing. quotation from a letter? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so Washington uh, has just read the Royal Proclamation, which forbids expansion into that territory. But he writes to William Crawford, a Pennsylvania surveyor, and says, I can never look upon the proclamation in any other light, but this I say between ourselves, than as a temporary expedient to quiet the minds of the Indians. It must fall, of course, in a few years, especially when those Indians consent to our occupying those lands. So what Washington writes to Crawford is, I know it's illegal, but go ahead and start surveying the Ohio Valley. Pretend that you're a hunter. In case you get caught, just say you're hunting, and that will be a, you know, a cover. So you do the surveying, pick out the best lots, and when the time comes, I'll buy them, and we'll both make a fortune. So this is the man who never told a lie, who is saying, well, we'll just lie and say you're hunting, and we'll break the law and go ahead and there's more. These two guys uh, basically continued to collaborate until uh, Crawford died in 82. But yeah, they're already drawing lines across, uh, you know, the, the native territory in the Ohio Valley and, you know, picking out the best lots for themselves. Of course, that's not going to happen unless the British government reverses their policy or something else happens. Let me also jump in with uh, some of the other antecedents uh, in terms of the slavery question. Um, the Gerald Horn, again, the counter-revolution of 1776. Uh, Gerald Horn, who's an American historian, argues that uh, basically, well, you can tell from the title, he's arguing that the revolution, the American Revolution was actually a counter-revolution, and here's why. He's analyzing it in terms of slavery. So the big dynamic that Horn is identifying in the hundred years or so before the American Revolution is that 
lots of white people are leaving the Caribbean, lots of Anglo colonists from Jamaica and the other um, British Caribbean slave colonies uh, were getting poisoned. They're getting killed in their sleep. Um, Apparently like almost everyone knew someone who had been poisoned or killed by, by a slave. Uh, And the demographics were very unfavorable on the, in the Caribbean. They were the majority of the population was African. So they would go to America to resume their uh, happy lives as planters and colonists. Um, But they, um, and they did that because they knew the demographic balance. There were more white people um, in America, but then they would, the funny thing they would do would be once they got to America, they would lobby for and continually import even more slaves. So they kept, so they would go to South Carolina and they would start shifting the the demographic balance back towards more and more Africans and the British, the British kind of governors um, and uh, back in London were thinking, what are you guys doing? I thought this was why you left the Caribbean in the first place. And now you're reproducing the whole thing um, on the continent. Um, There were numerous, uh, and I mean, numerous conspiracies uh, by Africans. And the the plan was always the same. The plan was to kill all the white people in the colony and establish some kind of uh, African led kingdom um, of who was of who who was left the, the slaves. So this these were these plots were uncovered in 1712 in Manhattan, in 1736 in Antigua, in 1739 in Stono, in Manhattan again in 1741. Um, and then the big uh, case, uh, is it a good time to talk about 1772 uh, right now? Are we going to start into the 1770s or are there things we want to do first? There's things we want to do first. Okay, I'll get back to 1772 then when, when the time comes. Okay. So you, you go ahead. All right. Um, These uh, causes that we're outlining so far would really motivate a certain group of Americans. These would be uh, prosperous, upper-class Americans who had a lot to gain if the Ohio Valley was opened, or as Justin is suggesting, also have a lot to gain if they can, you know, establish their slave plantations or or transplant them from the Caribbean to uh, the American colonies. But in order to have a revolution, you need a little more support than that. And they're going to need to find some way to motivate a larger number of American colonists. And Britain went ahead and gave them all the ammunition they needed. In order to raise money to pay off the the cost of the last wars, Britain began looking for ways to squeeze the American colonists a little harder. So in 1764, they came up with the Sugar Act, which was a tax on sugar and molasses. Then they came up with the Currency Act, which would forbid colonial governments from issuing uh, paper money. It's not that they're dead set against paper money. It's just if if colonists are using the paper money of that colony, they're not using British currency. It's almost like an underground economy that we can't effectively tax. So they're really trying to take control of the colonial economy and make sure that they can siphon off a great deal of money. Well, that tax was not very popular. Uh, But in 1765, the Stamp Act was even less popular. So this is a tax on anything involving an official paper document, your will, uh, title deeds of property, even newspapers and pamphlets had to have a government stamp on and you had to pay a fee. 
and we are well aware that Americans do not taxes. <clears throat> well, they never did. So there's a little outrage at this uh, blatant attempt to take money from them. Uh, a group called the Sons of Liberty formed, and they began to protest against these outrageous taxes. So there were, uh, there were protests. Uh, the stamp distributors, so the official government agents in charge of this, were threatened, sometimes physically threatened. Sometimes their property was threatened, uh, and many of them resigned under pressure. So yet another theme that we've seen, uh, people doing something we don't like, we simply threaten them with violence and attack their property until they go away. And, and many of them did. So the British government realized how unpopular these acts were, and then they made a tremendous mistake. They withdrew them. So the British leadership, uh, Lord North, Lord Shelburne, uh, they wanted to get money out of America, but they were afraid of the resistance and they backed down. So they showed weakness. And once the colonists learned that, you know, these vigorous protests can get the British to back down, well, they're just going to do it again. And of course, the British still want to get money. So they're going to try to find another way to sneak in some taxes. And well, they repealed the Stamp Act in 1766. But by then, they had awoken American resistance to taxes, and you get the slogan, no taxation without representation, one of the most famous slogans to come out of the American Revolution, which I always thought was really funny. So the representation idea was, you can't tax us unless we have members of parliament from the colonies. Now, who would those guys be? Obviously, they would be upper-class, wealthy individuals, who could afford to travel to England and sit in Westminster. Uh, at the time, you have to remember, there's no salary for a member of parliament. If, you're a, <laughs> if you have a job, you can't quit your job and go to London and be a member of parliament because you would starve to death. So this is an, open, you know, an opportunity only for very wealthy people like your George Washington. Washington, Jefferson, yeah. Hamilton. So no taxation without representation means we're all against the tax unless I get to be a member of parliament. Well, let's assume that the British gave in on that one and allowed, what, two, two or three members of parliament from each colony? So you'd have uh, 26, 26 or 39 members of parliament out of 500 plus, and then you would accept the taxation? Somehow, I, I doubt that that's how it would happen. So really, that slogan simply means no taxation which is why it's still popular today. Uh, in 1766, the British passed the Declaratory Act. This is simply saying, we have the right to impose taxes, which sounds very much like your parents saying, well, I'm your parents and you will obey me because, because you have to. It's really quite weak. Uh, in 1767 and eight, they passed a series of acts known as the Townshend Acts. And this was attempts to sneak more taxes in and they were just as unpopular as the previous ones. At this stage, American colonists are simply saying no to everything. It's, it's a very loud, uh, unequivocal no. Uh, there were more riots and quite a bit of tax evasion, uh, some smuggling, some tax fraud. Um, I think Sam, Ad no, John Hancock had a schooner and was smuggling quite openly. And of course, there was subversion of British attempts to collect taxes or enforce these, these decrees. Uh, 
uh, yeah, then we get to the, the famous Boston Massacre of 1770. Um, the Boston Massacre. Uh, you can guess who calls it a massacre. So the facts are, are not entirely in dispute. A group of British soldiers on, on guard duty in Boston, and they were being uh, harassed by a mob. So your definition of harassed might not be the same as someone else's. In this case, the mob was harassing the British soldiers with clubs and stones and uh, snowballs. Uh, apparently, one soldier was practically knocked out, uh, and then another soldier panicked and fired his musket, and then a ragged volley uh, followed. It's, it's really difficult to get people to agree on exactly how many people were killed and injured, but it seems to be that... Uh, three people were killed and eight wounded. I think two of the wounded died subsequently. After this, the British arrested eight soldiers, put them on trial. Two were convicted of manslaughter and were branded. That was their punishment. But the outrage among American colonists just went through the roof. You can tell by the name of the incident. They called it a massacre. I, I'm not sure. I think using clubs and yeah. stones... <laughs> Especially when you consider what they were doing to Indians throughout this period. Yeah, those aren't called massacres. Those are called those are called raids. So in seventeen seventy two, there's a slave. It's actually December seventeen seventy one. There's a slave uh, whose name is James Somerset. He's found to be shackled on a ship in the Thames, bound for a westward destination. Uh anti-slavery advocates uh, heard heard this was happening. Um, he'd been bought in Virginia, but he was known as a runner. Um, he was always escaping. Um, and uh, so London, um, so these uh, abolitionists, I guess, uh, got a hold of him and uh, he was brought, uh, it was, there was a legal case uh, known which came to be known as the Somerset case and uh, it was brought before a judge named Lord Mansfield and Mansfield said uh, we are not slavery is not Ill, slavery is not legal in England and therefore um, Mr. Somerset is free <laughs> and uh, if you want to talk about the outrage of the Americans under that circumstance um so, you know, the, the most, probably the most uh, clear comment was that by one, one observer who said, this is a, this is a basically a judgment that can cheat an honest American of his slave. <laughs> I, wonder if, I wonder if they called it the thin edge of the wedge. You know, once they do this, next they'll be coming for our assault rifles. <laughs> well, I have this, I have this thing with, uh, with Israel where, um, you know, the siege of Gaza, I always say, like, it's not just Israel, right? Like, you can't besiege a small part of the world without the participation of every other country in the world, because every other country has to agree, like Egypt has to agree. Um, all the, you know, the Americans, the Europeans, they all have to, in some sense, agree that Israel's allowed to do this. And similarly, slavery only works if slaves are slaves everywhere, because otherwise uh, the um, the white Americans can't travel um, and they can't take their slaves with their, you know, the, these good, honest Americans can't take their slaves with them. Uh, otherwise, they could be cheated out of them by these anti-slavery laws. 
So that was a major, uh, again, Horn cites that as a major uh, cause of the war. And then there's another thing that happens in 1775, but I'll get back to that, right? Yeah. Now, if you're a slave owner, that would really upset you. But then the British went and did something that upset virtually everyone. Uh, in order to find a new source of revenue, they decided to tax tea which was an absolutely essential commodity. Everybody drank tea. So a tax on tea, and that was incredibly unpopular. Well, as I said, the American colonists were already in the habit of saying no, but this one really outraged everyone. And of course, it led directly to the Boston Tea Party. Uh, and the tea is from India? Oh, yeah. I guess. Yeah. In India mm. and, and Ceylon, Sri Lanka. Um <clears throat> the Boston Tea Party is, there's an element of humor in it, but <laughs> there, there's even more. So I'm sure everybody knows the basic story. Uh, some Americans, um, many of them disguised as Mohawks, uh, went into the harbor and uh, took over the ships carrying tea, and they threw the chests of tea into the harbor. So a, a, a boycott, a, a protest, a demonstration of their unhappiness, and there's <clears throat> one little detail that sticks out. Why would they disguise themselves as Mohawks? I mean, surely in downtown Boston, you're going to stand out a little bit. So is this just, I don't know, uh, giving Brit there, the finger or... There must have been some symbolism then that we don't, that doesn't resonate now, I suspect. Right. The other thing that struck me is, okay, did they sneak in and overpower the customs officers on duty there must have been guards did did they sneak by them or so here's the details i unearthed uh there's no agreement on how many were involved some say somewhere between 30 and 130 men so this is not like a couple of stealthy ninjas this is a like a, a fairly big crowd and for three hours they threw 342 chests from three different ships so again where are the authorities? Where are the guards? I mean, either they were in on it or or, or simply backed down. Uh, is this, you know, uh, vandalism? Is this uh, a criminal act? Sam Adams said that it was a principled protest and not a lawless mob. I guess it just depends on, on which side you're on. <laughs> complexion <laughs> Certain. so the long-term effect of this of course is that americans stopped drinking tea and started drinking coffee instead coffee which at this point is coming still probably from africa in the arab world yeah well I, yeah. it's already being Colum planted in the in the, in the americas in yeah. colombia and so the british uh responded with a series of acts so they closed the port of boston as a punishment uh, they passed uh, a quartering act. They had done this before. We're sending troops and they're going to keep uh, order. But uh, rather than housing them in barracks, you Americans are going to take them into your homes and provide room and board. So this was really unpopular with the Americans who had soldiers uh, billeted on them. Um, they also uh, declared a change of venue for trials of soldiers or officials charged with suppressing riots. So think of the Boston massacre. Uh, they were afraid that if anything like this happened again and a trial was held in the colony where it had occurred, that 
these guys weren't going to get a fair trial. So they would change the venue and have it done in England. So Americans called this the Murder Act, uh, arguing that this would give carte blanche to uh, British soldiers or British officials to uh, use force against them and then get off scot-free at a trial in England. Uh, collectively, the Americans called these acts the Intolerable Acts. And one of the Intolerable Acts was the Quebec Act, which uh, from a Canadian perspective is very interesting. So in 1763, uh, French Canadians were informed that you are no longer subjects of the French crown, you are subjects of the English crown. And as such, you should, uh, well, learn to speak English, and you should probably convert to Anglican, because that's how we roll. So Quebecers, uh, well, I guess they ignored it <laughs> as much as they could, and life went on. But with all this unrest in uh, the American colonies, Britain began to worry that French Canadians might get drawn into it and they might make common cause with the Americans. So part of the Quebec Act was an attempt to um, win over French Canadians. So the British Crown granted uh, Quebec uh, freedom of religion and freedom of language. Uh, basically, there weren't enough English-speaking people in Quebec to teach them all, uh, so we're going to let you continue to speak French, and we're going to let you remain Catholic uh, for now. They didn't put the for now uh, in the document, but yeah, basically you can speak French and you can stay Catholic. And it worked like a charm. Quebec figured, great, you know, that that's awesome. So when American revolutionaries came to them and said, you know, join with us, the French had, you know, two simple questions. Okay, so if we join with you, uh, what language will your new country speak? Well, you know, English, obviously. And what religion would you be? You know, Protestant, obviously. And Quebec said, eh, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> Merci, mais non. <laughs> yeah, so the Quebec Act outraged Americans because it granted religious freedom to papists. And how dare you do that? But the one little piece that got their attention was it definitely closed the Ohio Valley for the foreseeable future. So those investors ah. like Washington were not going to be able to buy up the choice lots and make a fortune. So that so, again offended yeah. those people. Let me jump back in here sure. because uh, Lord Dunmore, who's a major uh, figure in several ways uh, on the English side of this uh, war, uh, Lord Dunmore is the governor, the royal governor of Virginia. And speaking about the Ohio Valley in 1774, uh, we we talked a lot about the, the so-called first way of war uh, in previous episodes, the way that uh, the American rangers would fight these uh, wars in the 18th century and onward. Uh, so Lord Dunmore um, sends 150 of these American rangers. So when you send rangers to attack an, an Indian nation, they scalp, they murder non-combatants, they destroy their uh, fields, uh, their their food supplies. So he sends 150 rangers to the Shawnee to attack the Shawnee in Virginia. He mobilizes the Virginia militia for the invasion of Ohio. His orders are um, to his subordinates, proceed directly to their towns, destroy their towns and magazines and distress them in every other way that is possible. So the Shawnees fought a pitched battle. Um, they were trying to prevent the rangers from going into their homes uh, in their villages. They fought a pitched battle. Uh, they, they beat the rangers uh, at a 
spot called Point Pleasant, but the Rangers managed to regroup and continue uh, to attack their homelands. The Shawnees ended up suing for peace. Dunmore took their lands in Kentucky and took hostages. The Western Indians um, in the Valley also signed a peace deal. So that's Dunmore uh, in terms of his treatment of the Indians um, in the the Ohio Valley and and, uh, in Virginia. Then there's Dunmore who's frustrated with the, I guess you could say, the white American revolutionaries. Um, And he declares in South Carolina that if the American revolutionaries keep up this unrest, he will arm the Africans um, and fight the American revolutionaries with African uh, fighters. And Africans were a majority in South Carolina at this time. London already had a history of using African sailors and fighters in some of their conflicts. Um, And so the Americans, again, were not just outraged at this point, but actually quite afraid uh, of what might happen if they lost. Um, So that was another major step another major escalation and that's 1775 yeah at at this stage there are a number of americans who uh, are starting to believe that protest and riot and subversion aren't going to do the job and that they have to take the next step and this was the formation of the continental congress so it's a uh, a meeting of delegates in philadelphia Uh, some of these delegates were i would say elected in quotes Uh, There's no way of knowing how many people were involved in voting or choosing them. But some of these delegates were simply appointed by colonial legislatures or by the committee of correspondence in a colony. And how many people is that? So uh, basically pro-revolution groups chose delegates and they went to Philadelphia to talk over how are we going to do this. So this is the first Continental Congress. At this stage... How many people were in favor of a revolution against Britain? It looks like less than half, maybe 40, maybe 45% were in favor of a revolution. So the majority were against it. That's not to say that they were happy, but you know the difference between reform and revolution is pretty significant. The Continental Congress uh, decided to form militia and to gather weapons, and these groups started practicing. This is your Minutemen, your Continental Militia. And this led to some clashes when the British obviously tried to shut down these groups. Uh, are they called Are they called Minutemen because they can be ready in one minute? Is that the idea? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, basically they can pick up their musket, run out, and join up with the other guys and line up, and now we have a fighting unit. Uh, this led to clashes at Lexington and Concord. So the first shots fired... Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson called it the shot heard round the world. Probably an exaggeration, but uh, in any case, it's open hostilities between these American militiamen and British regulars. This is also the episode that features uh, Paul Revere's ride, which is another episode I just don't understand. Uh, you know about the lanterns? They, Not really. Okay, so they were they were drilling, uh, training really at Lexington and Concord. And the British found out about it, and they were going to send troops. Now, the question was, were they going to go by ship, by boat, or were they going to go across land? So it's pretty hard to hide the movement of redcoats. So they were going to be warned. The militiamen were going to find out. Uh, 
somebody was going to hang a lantern in the church steeple. So one lantern would mean they were coming by land, two by sea. So if you've got that signal, why does Paul Revere have to go riding across the country yelling, the British are coming, the British are coming? I, I'm not sure I understand. But it doesn't matter. It makes for a glorious episode, even though the militiamen fired a few shots and then ran away because they were facing regulars, regular soldiers who knew what they were doing. Uh, the Congress took the next step. They decided to form a continental army and they needed an officer to command it. And who better than former colonel of militia, George Washington. So he became the first commander of this continental army. So by 1775, it's, it's on. Um, and people took it into their own hands. Uh, Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold along with the Green Mountain Boys from Vermont, captured Fort Ticonderoga. And then uh, Benedict Arnold went on to attack Quebec City with his uh, militiamen. And uh, they failed rather dramatically. But uh, at this stage, war is on. And now we need to justify our war. Uh, and so in 1776, uh, Thomas Paine published his pamphlet called Common Sense. Uh, great title which will be borrowed later by quite a few other politicians. Um, it was a bestseller then, and it's still very popular now. Uh, a large part of it is an attack on the divine right of kings, which, as I say, is kind of foolish because that's not even an issue anymore. But he does argue that it's ridiculous for an island to rule a continent, and there's a, quite a bit in, in it about equality and liberty. Um, so the first few battles are small, uh, confusing little affairs. Uh, most of them are American defeats because a semi-trained militia just can't stand up to trained professional soldiers. Uh, and here I just want to touch briefly on a, on a myth uh, that's been perpetuated for a long, long time. Some people picture the American revolutionaries as sort of, you know, Davy Crockett uh, frontiersmen hiding behind a tree while the stupid British stand out there in lines wearing their bright red coats and the sharp shooting American frontiersmen pick them off. Um, the fact of the matter is most of the men in this continental army are uh, townspeople from you know New York and Boston and places like that. Uh, and they didn't hide behind trees. They were afraid of that. And they, they were terrified that behind every tree would be you know, a Native American who was going to scalp them. So they were definitely not frontiersmen. Um, they had never really been as good at that style of warfare as the French and their Indian allies were, which is why every time a war started, they would scream for British regulars to come and defend them. So in reality, the battles that are fought here are the untrained Americans trying to stand up to British regulars and really not doing very well. Um, Many more small battles in 1777, and then a really large split in the American colonists, um, because many of them stayed loyal to Britain. So here are the loyalists. Do you want to mention the, the Mel Gibson movie, The Patriot? You know, I haven't read, I mean, I haven't watched The Patriot. I read an essay by Guy Gabriel Kay, one of our uh, favorite uh, Toronto-based fantasy authors. Um and he wrote an essay called The Problem with the Patriot, where he talks about all the historical inaccuracies of the movie and um, and how uh, wh why it's why it's important 
in a historical movie to try to be historically accurate or <laughs> if you're gonna if you're gonna not be historically accurate as he is not um then you make it a fantasy and you detach it from its historical moorings so in fact i, I have you seen it dave i haven't no dave. i i read a, a similar article i don't remember if it was by Kay, uh but also our mutual friend phil told me about it and i thought okay i don't want to watch that <laughs> yeah, we had similar. One of, one of the things that uh, Phil told me was uh, the portrayal of uh, Tarleton. So Tarleton was a uh, another militia commander, but he stayed loyal to Britain. He organized a, a fast-moving uh, militia unit of loyalists, and he fought uh, running battles with American revolutionaries. So he, he fought Mel Gibson, probably, basically. Right. And in yeah. the movie, Tarleton is portrayed as, of course, a sadistic, psychotic... <laughs> uh, murderer of children and you know basically he's, he's committing atrocities right left and center which is just so blatantly <laughs> wrong right. right but that's it you you blacken your enemy and and throw every possible accusation at them this is one of my favorite things about history is when you watch a hollywood production or a bbc production you realize what you're seeing is not just propaganda but like hundreds of year old propaganda or in the case of hbo's rome thousands of year old propaganda yeah um it's a, yeah it's fascinating <laughs> um yeah this is this is propaganda at the time, and it goes on being propaganda. I, I should probably say at, at this stage in 1777 and, and eight, the Americans did finally win a major victory. So General Burgoyne was supposed to be leading a force uh, from Quebec uh, to invade the northern states. There was another uh, thrust from New York, and I believe there was a landing in Virginia. So they had this three-pronged attack work it worked out. Well, Burgoyne walked into a, an ambush at Saratoga, and his force was destroyed, and he was killed. So this gave the Americans a real boost of confidence. Um, but coming back to the, the, the propaganda angle, yeah, the, the Baylor Massacre of 1778. So the British launched a, a, a surprise attack in New Jersey on the camp of uh, the Continental Light Dragoons, commanded by Colonel Baylor, and uh, beat them up severely. And this is called the Baylor Massacre, whereas surprise attacks launched by George Washington at Trenton, uh, I think he did it on Christmas Day, how uncivilized is that, uh, is praised for his, you know... Mobility and lightning oh, quick initiative and, and decisiveness. And yeah. And yeah. So when we surprise attack you, that's great. When you surprise attack us, that's a massacre. Not sporting. Okay. Let me tell, let me tell you, cause we're, we're covering the same period. So let me tell you about the Indian wars mm. uh, at the same time. So on the Southern frontier of the colonies is where the Cherokees are. Uh, and the Patriots and the British both approached the Cherokees. The Patriots asked them to stay out of it. The British asked them to join. They joined the British. Um, the Americans of North Carolina uh, basically adopted a resolution in 1776. They said, It is surely the policy of the southern colonies to carry fire and sword into the very bowels of their country and sink them so low they may never be able again to rise. So 5,500 Americans attacked the Indian towns. The Cherokees fled ahead of them. The Americans burned the towns and their food. Whoever they caught, uh, women, children, 
uh, adults, they scalped uh, and they would recapture any African slaves that had joined and were freed. Um, the Shawnees uh, joined the British in 1777. Uh, the Shawnees attacked in the upper Ohio Valley um, and they had some successes. The Americans counterattacked in 1778. And this is another element of American warfare in this time. They attacked not just the Shawnees, who, who they were at war with, but the Delawares, who were neutral at the time. So they attacked a completely neutral nation uh, because they couldn't reach the Shawnees and they killed and scalped the Delawares that they found. Colonel Edward Hand at the time had to put down a riot between his troops who were actually fighting to claim the honor of having killed a boy, a young Indian uh, boy, a Delaware boy. Um, They killed three women, killed a child uh, when the women escaped. The Delawares uh, remained neutral because they were terrified if they were if the Americans were willing to do this to them when they were neutral, what would they be willing to do to them if they had declared war, fought back? In 1778, the Patriots replace Colonel Edward Hand with uh, a, a man named Lachlan McIntosh. They give him a thousand more men. The Shawnees withdraw to Sandusky. McIntosh builds forts and waits out the winter while the Shawnees scour the frontier and attack one of the forts, Fort Lawrence, in 1779. Virginia commissions Rogers Clark and 200 Virginia Rangers, who moves into (coughs) Illinois. Uh, He sends a message to the Indians outside of Detroit. He said, you may expect in four moons to see your women and children given to the dogs. He takes one of the Courier de Bois, which is like uh, one of the French allies of the Indians, and he partially scalps him. in sight of the town in Illinois, uh, and he kills four Indians for them to see. So the the commander, the British commander, uh, Henry Hamilton, surrenders and is shackled and transported to Williamsburg as a war criminal. Um, the neutral Delawares are told by the Americans, "If you don't want us to be, if you don't want to get killed and scalped for money, because there's an economy in Indian scalps at this point, uh, then you better stay off the roads." Um, so in 1780, Guy Carlton and his replacement Frederick Haldeman, um, Haldeman, sorry, give Colonel Schuler de Pester permission to activate the Indian allies to fight the American patriots. So uh, um, they attack Fort Nelson in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, there are the Shawnee Wyandot and Ottawa Auxiliaries. Uh, they figure out that one of the American patriots is planning to ambush them, so they take a longer route. Um, and they fight the Patriots in the uh, Licking Valley. There are some massacres after that by the British and Indian forces of uh, Patriot villagers. Um, Even there, Kentucky- you're using the term massacres. Yeah, see, look what I did. But they were, I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to use it neutrally. It was women, that, This was actually non-combatants, as, to use a more modern term. Okay. Uh, Kentucky, Americans from Kentucky flee the frontier. Um Clark, now this is one of the Patriots, he takes 800 of these Virginia frontiersmen. They go uh, attack the Shawnee towns in Ohio. And these are also massacres. They're torching 800 acres of fields. They're scalping Indians. Um, The Chickamauga Indians start attacking the Patriots in Tennessee um, under one of the Cherokee survivors of the 1776 war. North Carolina sends rangers against them. 
there's a joint Virginia North Carolina force to attack the Cherokee towns. Again, more massacres. The Cherokees retreat. The colonel follows them into Tennessee and Alabama, where they burn Indian towns and massacre entire Indian um, families. The Chickamaugas, the Cherokees flee, continue to flee ahead of them. Uh, And then in 1781, as I mentioned, the Delawares who had tried to stay neutral, um, the frontiersmen just turn on them completely. Uh, The Delawares counterattack, and there's a war between uh, the Patriots and the Delawares. Um, and there are basically massacres of the Delawares, hostage taking, killing, scalping. Um, the, one of the one of the American Patriot colonels, Colonel David Williamson, attacks a Christian Moravian mission. Um, he gathers a hundred Indians, tries them in a kangaroo court, and has them all massacred with tomahawks and burns the mission down. So. Um, Lots of crowing about British atrocities, but this was a pretty substantial atrocity uh, in 1781. Um, Clark continues in 1782. A thousand frontiersmen to Ohio raises 16 Indian villages to the ground, kills dozens of women and children. And this is not of any strategic value in terms of the war with Britain, but it certainly helps them to solidify their land claim. The Like the Cherokees, the Iroquois Confederacy or the Haudenosaunee, they were sought after by the British, but the Patriots also wanted them to stay out of it. What ended up happening was the uh, nations actually split. The Mohawks and Senecas joined the British, the Oneidas joined the Americans, the Cayuga, Tuscarora, and Onondaga stayed neutral. So um, in that war, that's like more on the northern front, um, Colonel British Colonel... Uh, John Butler um, attacks the Wyoming Valley in 1778. Uh, the Loyalists destroy a Patriot settlement in German Flats, New York. They burn up and down um, Ul- Ulster County. Uh, they attack Cherry Valley. So the Mohawk and the Mohawks destroy a Patriot detachment in Delaware River in 1779. The Patriots attack the Seneca in 1779 to, and again, here's the quote, extirpate the unfriendly nations of the Indians, subdue their country, destroy their crops, and drive them out. By the end of summer, 1779, the Seneca villages are great heaps of ruin. The Patriots, uh, to again, quote, destroyed almost all the villages and cornfields of the Six Nations, forcing the survivors to flee. The Seneca warriors regrouped at Niagara uh, and attacked the Western settlements and their Oneida allies in the Mohawk Valley in 1780, uh, the British commander, John Johnson, attacks the Western New York settlers and attacks the Patriots' grain stores. Um, the New York settlers fled to Shecktonady. Uh, and in the Battle of jo- Johnstown, the British and Indian allies retreat to Niagara. The Oneida War Party captures the British captain in Walter Butler and kills him in 1781 which kind of ends the war on that front, on the New York front. So. Yeah, so that's not very well known, that during their revolution, the Americans spent a great deal of time and energy uh, attacking Native Americans rather than the British. Yeah, and, and securing those, and doing that to try to secure <clears throat> those lands ahead of what they uh, were planning, I guess, <clears throat> after the British were gone. So if we back up a little and look at the, the Revolutionary War from the, the larger uh, angle, the question emerges early, can the British win this fight? America's a huge area. Even just the 13 colonies is, is an immense area, which they can't occupy 
everywhere. They just don't have enough troops. Where they do have troops, the population tends to be quiet. Uh, if there are revolutionaries there, they, they don't do much. So that, that works, but you can't have British soldiers everywhere. The British are also discovering that they are not very popular in the rest of Europe. Uh, the last couple of wars, everybody else seems to have noticed that Britain, you know, made some very important gains outside of Europe, and uh, they alienated virtually everybody. There's a league of armed neutrality formed by uh, Denmark, Sweden, Russia, and a few other states, uh, and they're not going to like it if the British try to stop them from trading with the Americans. Uh, and then there are other countries who are even more hostile, France, obviously, uh, and others. The British are also suffering from a problem that Americans would be familiar with, uh, the Vietnam Syndrome. British opinion is divided. There are many, even in the House of Commons, who sympathize with the American colonists and, and what they're trying to achieve. I don't think they understand all of it, uh, probably not the massacres of Native Americans, or perhaps they just don't care about that aspect, but they're certainly uh, not united back in England. And then from the other perspective, can the Americans win? Uh, the British Navy is simply too powerful for them, and they can land British troops anywhere. So, for example, British troops landed at Charleston, South Carolina, and captured it. They can also evacuate their forces if they're in trouble, as they did in New York and Boston, and then relocate them somewhere else. American troops are simply not a match for the British. Um, they need far more training. They need weapons. They need money. And uh, they also suffered from that problem I mentioned before, where not all of the American colonists are revolutionaries. And even the ones who are, <clears throat> Many of them weren't keen to fight. As late as 1781, uh, there was a mutiny in the Pennsylvania Line uh, Regiment. Uh, these guys were demanding better pay and, and housing conditions. And there were also men who signed up for a short term of enlistment. They joined the Continental Army and they figured, okay, I'll go there and spend, you know, six months fighting. And at the end of their term of enlistment, they were told they couldn't go home. George Washington kept them there against their will uh, to continue fighting. For freedom. Uh, oh, yeah. For liberty. Yeah. For liberty. Um, yeah. There, there's no question that the Americans weren't going to win a clear victory. Uh, maybe the British weren't either. They, they seemed headed for a, a, <laughs> a, a stagnant uh, struggle that would go on for a long, long time. Uh, what changed that situation was the intervention of France. Uh, as early as 1775, they were sending money and weapons to the Americans. You know, anything that embarrasses their enemy Britain, uh, they figured is, is a good thing. Um, there were also some French officers, uh, high-ranking noblemen, among them uh, the Marquis de Lafayette, Comte de Mirabeau. Uh, a number of these French officers went over to America and helped train helped uh, to train uh, Washington's army. I've read before that uh, these uh, men acted without the permission of the king. Uh, that is a little bit of uh, a, a minor deception. Uh, when Lafayette returned, he was not stripped of his title and was not punished in any way. Uh, they're basically like like the Saudis that go fight in uh, the Islamic State in Iraq and then uh, get 
come back to Saudi and are uh, go to a, re- a five star rehabilitation camp or something. Something like that, or CIA agents <laughs> who invade Cuba or Venezuela. Or Venezuela, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the French then took the step of recognizing the independence of the United States, who were still in the middle of the Revolutionary War, which of course just made the British furious, but. Uh, so they received uh, American ambassadors. Among the first envoys to Paris were Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, and they were a big hit in uh, in the salons in Paris. Uh, very, very popular. Not only because they were embarrassing Britain, but you know for their uh, personal qualities. And I think the the French Enlightenment crowd were were quite impressed that you know these guys were so interesting and and well educated and knowledgeable. And they all, they, Franklin and Jefferson, I guess, spoke French. Mm-hmm. Yes, they right. did. Eventually, the French decided to take the final step and declare war on Britain. Uh, Spain and the Dutch joined in as well. So now Britain is not only struggling with their American colonists, but they're facing uh, a full-scale war. And this time, unlike the previous wars, France is not distracted by fighting against the Austrians or the Prussians. In fact, this is the first war where French energies were entirely devoted to uh, their naval forces, and that made a huge difference. The French went on the offensive and immediately began doing to the British what the British had done to them in previous wars. So they uh, began capturing British colonies. They captured Dominica and Grenada, St. Vincent, Montserrat, Tobago, St. Kitts, uh, and that's only in the Caribbean. Uh, They landed uh, an army to assist Washington, and their navy played the decisive role in the most decisive uh, campaign or battle. This is Yorktown in 1781. So George Washington's army was outside Yorktown. The British force was uh, safe there uh, under Cornwallis. And if things got bad, they could simply be evacuated by their navy. Well, the French navy showed up. Uh, outnumbered the British Navy. They fought a, a battle. Uh, it wasn't extremely decisive, except that the British had to retreat, leaving Cornwallis isolated. And eventually, he was forced to surrender. Uh, and that's the main British army. Um, the, the point, I guess, is that the intervention of France was crucial in de- determining the outcome. Without France, I don't know that the Americans win, or certainly they don't win as quickly uh, as actually happened. Uh, how important was the French aid? Well, in just in terms of money alone, uh, they basically gave the Americans 1.3 billion livres. That's billion with a B. At that time. At that time. And that's in addition to what they spent on their own efforts. Um, so the British eventually had to make peace with France. France decided to uh, stop the war you know, while they were ahead. So they returned some of the American, the British colonies that they'd captured, but they kept uh, uh, Senegal and Tobago and uh, St. Lucia. And Spain got Florida back. So that problem for the Americans with Spanish Florida is back in play. And then eventually the British had to come to terms with the fact that they weren't going to win the Revolutionary War. And so they made peace with America and conceded independence, leading to quite a few very significant consequences for the future. Um, One of these, uh, the spread of American ideas in in France 
first of all, there was men like Franklin and, and Jefferson who, you know, doing it firsthand. But after the war, you have uh, thousands of French soldiers and French officers who are returning to, to France with their stories of the American Revolution, including some really interesting observations. French officers were very interested in the fact that uh, the average American felt no hesitation about addressing their commanders very familiarly. So when you see a, an American soldier talking to George Washington and saying, well, now, General, I don't know about that, that would be impossible in France. Uh, they found American attitudes uh, startling, and certainly concepts like equality and liberty uh, were very appealing. Well, back in London, the British realized how isolated they were, how unpopular they were. They had no allies, no friends, um, even the people who were neutral armed against them. Uh, and it was uh, basically back to the drawing board for them. There was another significant impact of the revolution that took many years to discover, decades actually, um, and it was found by a clerk in London who was doing the accounts of uh, foreign trade and, and the tariffs that had been collected. Uh, everybody assumed, obviously, that now the Americans are independent, British trade with them would decline to zero. And that's not what happened. In fact, the opposite happened. British trade with America increased after the revolution. And this was a, a major revelation to the British. They realized you don't have to own that place to do business with them. And the advantage there is enormous. We don't have to pay for colonial administration. We don't have to pay for troops and their upkeep. We don't have to defend the place. We just have to sail over and do business with them. So the, the overhead costs disappear. And this is the beginning of the British interest in free trade, as opposed to mercantilism, where you close, uh, you shut out other competitors and collect tariffs. So free trade is beginning to look very attractive to them. Uh, another impact of the Revolutionary War was many of the loyalists who fought on the losing side uh, were no longer welcome in the now independent United States, and they migrated. Many of them went uh, north and settled in Canada, uh, in the Maritime Provinces, but also in uh, south, southern Ontario. And eventually, they're going to change the balance of Canada, um, which was, you know, obviously mostly French and Catholic. But now there's going to be an English-speaking uh, Protestant population that the British can lean on, and that's going to change their attitude once more uh, to Quebec. Maybe the biggest impact uh, of the American Revolution was on France. Uh, it was very, very unwise for them to go into this war because they hadn't finished paying for the War of Austrian Succession, much less the Seven Years' War. They were already in massive debt, and this simply overloaded them uh, the the financial cost of war was absolutely immense and led almost directly to the French Revolution. It, it's no coincidence that the French Revolution begins, uh, what, six years after the end of the American Revolutionary War. So they got their revenge on Britain, but it ended up costing them dearly. Yeah. Um, then, if we have time, we could take a little peek at some of the institutions the Americans set up. Uh, yeah, let me do a couple more international consequences just to point to future episodes because when uh, the British st 
decided to go in on colonizing Australia in a big way, uh, they were looking to the lessons of the American experience. So they said, okay, we're not going to do slavery in a big way because that didn't work so well for us in America. We're not going to uh, recognize indigenous sovereignty the way that we did in uh, the Americas because that also... uh, enraged the settlers um, against us and inflamed them against us. And so these particulars of, uh, of the American experience led to Australia kind of being having the, the state that it does uh, today uh, and was called the way that Brit- the British decided to approach settler colonialism in Australia. And we'll, we'll talk about that. There's a, there's a reading I found a, a writer uh, named Patrick Wolf, a scholar, a historian, I think ma- mainly writes about like racism in different parts of the world. And uh, I read a really interesting chapter in one of his books about Australia. Mm-hmm. And then of course, uh, many, many consequences for British colonialism uh, and their approach to India and the Indian subcontinent, uh, which we'll also get into. Um, as far as institutions, let me just say one thing before you start, which is um, you were talking about the French French financial consequences, and of course the British, uh, you know, a- approaches to free trade and mercantilism, and their approaches to colonizing India and Australia after America. Um, as far as the Brit the American side of the financial consequences. Uh, I I took a quick skim through a book by an American historian named William Hoagland. Uh, He wrote a book called Founding Finance. And uh, it's just, he was talking about some of the historiography where there's a historian in 1913 who, who argued that the Constitution framers were all wartime bondholders. So they, they bought these bonds, um, you know, the governments of the, of the colonies uh, sold bonds to these men uh, against uh, <laughs> against winning the war, and they were not going to get paid back unless they had formed unless they formed a, a national government. Um, and when Alexander Hamilton um, was advocating a particular constitutional form, he he wanted to he advocated the so called assumption of the state's debts and set up a tax expressly so that those bondholders could be paid back and he wanted to tax whiskey which was upsetting to a constitution and to a group of people in pennsylvania and they uh they incited the whiskey there was a thing called the whiskey rebellion shortly after the american revolution so no taxation uh without representation for sure except we sort of need these taxes to make sure we get paid back for the war bonds we sold to the governments uh, during the revolution (laughs) over over to you (laughs) Yeah, there's a great deal of mythology associated with the American Revolution. What What's really interesting is that the American Revolution, other than inspiring the French, doesn't really seem to have inspired anybody else. You know, as a, as a role model, you would think that the first colonial peoples to successfully, you know, declare their independence from the metropolis, it, it's surprising how few people look to them as an example and i think but that's... it's so yeah it's so particular right in terms of their distra- their continuous war against indian nations and their slavery there yeah. the importance of slavery to their whole system and it's uh that that might be why 
so few Americans were actually active, dedicated revolutionaries. It really seems to have been a, a war fought for the benefit of those bondholders. Uh, yeah. You know, many of them uh, slave owners for sure, but many others wanting to capitalize on the uh, acquisition of, of uh, Native American land, which they were prepared to uh, grab as much as they could get away with. Uh, but there are quite a few other myths associated with this revolution. Uh, the Second Amendment comes to mind. So you you still have the idea today that, you know, if the government oppresses us, we're going to go and get our muskets and form militias. Well, there are militias. Um, they don't have muskets mm-hmm. anymore. But the whole concept is so dated. I mean, if you have a musket and the British soldiers have a musket, that's pretty fair. So now you have a, an automatic rifle. Well, the government has um, drones and stealth <laughs> bombers and nuclear weapons. You know. Well, the thing is, again, like I, I go back, like it's, I go back to what these militias really were about, and the militias weren't really about having a, th- making a credible threat to the state. They were about making sure you could recapture slaves that were running away, and making sure that you could defend uh land and acquire uh indian land mm-hmm. um and so you know that uh, the that you're right it's a, the the mythological part of it is about which which direction the guns are pointed in you know <laughs> yeah no they made some decisions early on uh, obviously repaying the bondholders so uh we need a national government uh the decision to give each state uh two senators regardless of population which is still, I think, a, a major structural problem that they have today when, yeah. you know, California has two state senators and, you know, Rhode Island. Rhode Island has two. <laughs> that, that's a little bit ridiculous. Um, also, the extension of the vote. Uh, they took us the same decision as uh, the levelers. Their definition of democracy is any man with property can be allowed to vote. So if you own land or slaves then you have an interest in the running of the state. And if you don't, well, then we don't trust you to vote responsibly. So you don't get a vote, you know, never mind uh, women or of color or any, anybody else. They're, they're not even extending the franchise to some of the men who fought, who carried muskets and, and fought in those battles. And then, of course, you have the Electoral College, which was just one more layer of to, to prevent actual democracy from taking place. So I didn't understand fully what the Electoral College was or or how it worked until I studied the revolution a little more closely. So basically, if the voters choose the wrong candidates, meaning not us, but maybe somebody with radical ideas who will upset the apple cart and, and overturn some of the decisions we've made, say somebody crazy coming along and wanting to abolish slavery, you know, somebody coming in and wanting to practice actual democracy. So in order to protect ourselves from a vote for the wrong people, they established the Electoral College. So I don't think many Americans realize, but they don't actually vote directly for president. Their votes are counted. And then members of the Electoral College cast the votes for president. So each state has a certain number of electoral college votes, and those and they're supposed to follow whatever the people voted 
Yeah, traditionally, if most of the people in that state vote for this candidate, then the Electoral College votes go to that candidate. But they're not split proportionally. So I think in uh, the first George W. Bush election, he won the state of Florida by 500 and some votes. And this is after the massive fraud with the, uh, the hanging chat and the votes that weren't counted and all of that stuff. And he won all of the Electoral College votes. They weren't split. They all went to him. And that's why he became president, even though Gore uh, won the popular vote a significant amount, repeated again with Trump and so on. But yeah, traditionally, those Electoral College votes go to the person who got the most votes in the state. But they don't have to. Tradition is one thing. (laughs) And, you know... I think Americans will be shocked the first time it happens, but... And that could be this year. It could be the next election. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. For sure. So basically, you have a revolutionary state starting from scratch. They can set up any system that they want. And what do they do? They set up an anti-democratic democracy uh, that's going to be run for the benefit of landholders and slave owners. There's another quote from founding finance uh randolph i don't know much about this historical figure but um (laughs) it's a great quote he says uh they're trying to figure out the constitution for the united states of america and looking at the constitutions of the different states and he says none of the constitutions of these state governments have provided sufficient checks against the democracy And he, in another part of the quote, he says, our chief danger arises from the democratic parts of our constitutions. (laughs) I I love that. So, I mean, you've got to understand that when these guys sat down after having won the war, um, they were were sitting down thinking about how to prevent democracy, not how to establish one. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, we got a couple more revolutions coming up. France, Haiti, and, uh, stay tuned.